I was on Sesame Street once. So I did do that. You were on the show. I was on Sesame Street once. No way. You but were I was not Sesame. age you were one of the kids, obviously. I was not age appropriate. I was 11. I was like a little bit older than you should be <laughs> when you're on Sesame Street. Uh, the, the kids were around me at like maybe six and seven. Hey, they're good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. So I'm recording this in mid-November, and the last couple of weeks have been tough. Um, after FTX decided to shit the bed, destroy its $32 billion valuation, and go bankrupt overnight. As I like to say, it's not crypto if there isn't a conference in a couple of days and there isn't some enormous blow-up just in the rearview mirror. So here we are. On a lighter note, I'm really excited to have Chris Kastig on the show today. He is a co-founder of Console XYZ, which is a decentralized um, alternative to Discord. And if you've ever been on Discord, you might know that it's sometimes tricky to navigate and not super intuitive. So I'm excited to see what Console has to offer as an alternative. We talked today uh, with Chris about Kevin Kelly and Lawrence Lessig and some of the other um, pioneers uh, and authors in the 1990s who were kind of the forefathers of the Web3 metaverse movement. I'm pretty sure that I've never had a guest on Decent People who is also on Sesame Street. So we're going to get into that. And we talk about how music and technology kind of came together and blew his mind uh, when services like Napster and BitTorrent came out. We also get the lowdown on console and how they're trying to adhere to um, Web3 uh, protocols and uh, the ethos uh, of decentralization to offer, offer an alternative uh, to Discord. So let's get to the show. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Chris, how are you doing? Thanks for being here. Matt, super, super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. it's great, great, to, great to talk to you. Um, so right off the bat, I noticed that you're a bit of a writer and I'm, I don't get a lot of writers on here. So I'd love to just kind of dive into um, your you know, writing experience. And you used to have a podcast, uh, it was called On Books, I believe. And um, yeah. you did about 60 episodes, um, a wide range of topics from business um, to um, fiction to sort of um, motivational or, you know, sort of like, hey man, let's get going kind of stuff. So um, tell me a little bit about your, your writing background and, and what drew you to, to do that um, uh, in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Um, I write a lot. Um, I just wrote anything from a blog piece yesterday about um, Discord hacks, which is relevant to our company, uh, you know, because we're working on improving and making a secure chat. Uh, but, you know, not only just about that, I'm also working on a book uh, about Web3. Um, and that's what I've been working on for about three years. So, um, but, you know, I don't know. I probably also published like something like 200 blog posts and articles at various publications over the years. Um, so yeah, that's my experience. I guess, you know, why writing? I don't know. I just feel like, uh, I think Joan Didion said it best. It's like, I don't know what I'm thinking until I write it out. You know, it, it I think just helps me uh, clarify thought. And I've met so many great people along the way who also will just respond, not in the comments. I, uh, comments are like not good, but usually they'll reach out on Twitter or like an yeah. email. 
And it's, <laughs> I've shut off comments these days. So I'm like, I don't, I, I don't, just, if you really want to talk, talk to my face, like just talk in comments. But yeah, uh, but yeah, so I've been writing for, for quite a while. And uh, yeah, it's been a great exercise and super fun. Yeah, Twitter is a tough um, place to be a writer for sure. Um, <laughs> do you, do you find, uh, you know, I've been working in Web3 and, and blockchain stuff for about seven years now. Uh, like I said, I don't run across many writers, you know, we, we get like obviously a lot of software developers and, and big thinkers. Um, have you, I'm just curious if you, um, like, and to me, like if coming from the reporting world and still being a reporter, I think a lot of reporters get really scared by blockchain and they think it's too complicated and too hard to understand. Um, and I wonder if that's something that you think might keep more writers out, you know, from, from being part of the community. Yeah, it's, I've been surprised. I mean, I could be wrong about this, but um, I've been working on this Web3 book for three years. Uh, like I said, before Web3 was a term. And so I mentioned that because when I first started pitching the book, I want to say 2019, I mean, people were using the term Web3 you know, there was a Web3 conference here where I am uh, in Europe right at the moment. But anyways, um, but it was like, yeah, people kind of didn't want to touch it. I think I think it is confusing. And also they were like, we haven't heard anything like this pitch. There's like not a need for it. Um, but I think that's changing. Um, but I, 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 you know, I think you're right. I think I think the, the writing that happens in Web3 tends to be fairly uh, news, PR, technical, um, but I think the reason I'm here as well, and maybe this ties into the answer is like, I was just at a very young age, lucky enough to be inspired by just like a handful of amazing thinkers from like, I read Kevin Kelly's work at like age 20, Lawrence Lessig. I mean, happy to talk about these people, but they, I mean, they were, ima they imagined whatever people call web three or, uh, whatever people call the metaverse now in the nineties, they were like pulling apart these ideas in this like amazing futuristic slash like real way and i think i just happened to connect um and then always have since then have been like wow i wish i could like maybe help push or contribute or shape some ideas like they like they did so i think that's kind of where it came from for me just being yeah. inspired myself you know i think on the fiction side for me it was neil stevenson yeah yeah he of just, course he just seemed to nail it like really early. Um, Which book and, for you was No Crash? The Diamond, the Diamond Age and Snow Crash. Yeah, those yeah, two Diamond Age. Yeah, really. Um, yeah, had an effect on me. Um, well, if, if, I think we're. I'm going to guess here. I think we're roughly the same age because uh, I was reading some of your work um, about the internet, and you use a lot of Muppet um, analogies, um, and so. Um, if we're both approaching about the big 5-0, um, were you lucky enough to watch the, the Muppet Show live on TV when it was when airing? Uh, I wasn't. I'm, I'm actually I'm, I'm maybe a decade younger than that. But, uh, uh, okay. But yeah, um, so I think I grew up, though, with Sesame Street was, was for me, um, what really, I think, drew me. And I, I saw Labyrinth, the Jim Henson movie, uh, when I was young. Somebody showed me Labyrinth with my mom, with my mom or something. So um, I think that's, movie. yeah, I think that to me was just, um, I mean, I, I think, to, all right, look, anybody listening right now who needs like a movie to watch this weekend, there's this really amazing documentary that just came out like in the past year about, uh, about building Sesame Street. And 
okay, Sesame Street, you're like, whatever, it's Muppets. But actually, it, it was so countercultural back then. And I'm going to go into this for a second, but actually, I think it ties back to some of the stuff. It's like, like back then, having puppets on TV that were like, walking in the streets and like you know urban areas like in the city people around the world just like blown away and it was like it was this really countercultural thing but anyways like i think the 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 really important thing that like inspired me there is like i think if you bring together a group of like creative wild people with big ideas who also they were working like 20 hour days who like can do the work i, I don't know i think you can like really make some positive change in the world so i think that's probably like why i use muppets a lot it's like yeah. people kind of can relate to it but like there are also these like countercultural things from the 60s that like i don't know they're just like really enlivened a generation and like i don't know so i think it's like a callback in some ways in my mind that's my own story but that's how i feel about it <laughs> yeah I, I would have given anything to go into oscar's trash can and just see like what his house was like what, what it was like underneath there uh that okay, Matt. Something that I just yeah, go for it. No, totally. Okay, so I was on Sesame Street once, so I did do that. You were on the show. I was on Sesame Street once. No actually. way. You. But were I was on not Sesame. age. You were one of the kids, obviously. I was not age appropriate. I was eleven. I was like a little bit older than you should be <laughs> when you're on Sesame Street. Uh, the, the kids were around me at like maybe six and seven, but yeah, I was. Uh, I fed Big Bird. I had one line. I, I didn't do a great job with the one line, but I had one line. So yeah. What was your line? Do you remember? Yeah, I had I had a sack of, of bird seed, and when Big Bird walked in, I said, "Here's your bird seed, Big Bird," like that. And it took like <laughs> honestly, it took three takes. I was so nervous. I was like. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I only was on one time. They didn't call me back that, after that. That is amazing. Yeah. Okay, so then, okay, so I'm guessing now, or you tell me, were you growing up in New York City? And uh, New Jersey, so like outside the, the city. Okay. In the um, shadow of the city. Okay. Do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, yeah, family, <laughs> brother, <laughs> sister, all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, were your, what were your parents doing back in the day? Um... Yeah, like grew up like in fairly suburban like place. Uh and it was um yeah, my mom was I guess just like helped run an office for a lawyer. Um and then my dad worked at like a big company doing kind of like um like payroll stuff, you know. I, I actually like don't know that much. I feel like if anything, uh I feel like if anything, like yeah, I just I didn't really maybe even know what they did until I was a little little older, like in yeah. later in high school. Yeah. Was it um how how does one go about getting on Sesame Street? My uncle was the cameraman. Um uh, he was a bit of a like I don't know, black sheep is the right word, but he like didn't do the traditional like suburb kid like family life. Um I think he just kind of like made his own career and Part of that was, uh, yeah, he was there. And so I guess they needed, uh, some kid didn't show up and he called me and it was close enough maybe to, to bring me in to fill in that day. Yeah, oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and so what, what were you like in school? Did you like, were you always kind of going on the computer sort of path or what, what were the subjects that you kind of appealed to you? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I didn't, know too much about computers i was into music and this surprises people sometimes who take my coding classes because i've taught coding classes um over the past you know 10 years almost um is that i was a music major i didn't study computers and i actually thought 
coding was kind of like stupid and like had nothing to do with me. Um, so yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't study computers at all. I was just music every single day. Uh, for me, the moment that like brought those two worlds together was discovering like Napster or like BitTorrent. Like just, uh, I was just the idea of like technology and music together just blew my mind and changed my life path, I would say. Yeah. I always use Napster as an example when I'm trying to explain NFTs to somebody about yeah. how prior, you know, a digital file was mutable. It was just, you know, you could, it was copy, you could copy it a million times and send it around. You could upload it to Napster and then somebody halfway around the world can download it. Mm -hmm. um, did you play an instrument or how, what was your music? Like, how did you get into music in the first place? Oh yeah. Um, I, my neighbor, um, he moved in when I was like five. You had like a new neighbor, and you're like, "Who's this new person?" So you're so interested. You're like, I, "You know, who's who's living there?" And I didn't know who lived there for a while. Um, but I just would always hear this beautiful piano playing um, from you know from like the window. And it, you know, maybe it was like a few weeks or something. And you're just kind of like, "Who is this person?" And like this kid, this kid walked out, and he was like just my age. And I was like, "You're." you're playing the, you know and i think it just gave me this tremendous confidence that i was like well if he could do it i could do it or like you know be like he would show me you know and so i think just hearing like the like the beautiful potential at like i don't know what age i was six seven eight or something um it, i was just like wow i just want to do that one day and so i just spent like every day just like playing piano playing guitar just playing as much music as possible yeah yeah isn't that interesting how kids can learn from other kids almost like osmosis you know it's like it's it's such a different especially if you're a parent and you know if you try to teach your kids something it can be like incredibly frustrating and almost oh impossible in, in sometimes right but like i remember when my kids were learning to swim and we had some older kids come over and they saw what the older kids were doing and they improved probably like 20 times and that, oh, that's you know, so interesting one day than everything else that we've been trying to do for weeks <laughs> wow i mean we could all take a lesson from that right even like you know in our own lives now it's like just yeah. being around people who are cutting edge smarter like just working on different things so it's like yeah. the best way to Absolutely. learn and be inspired yeah um so did I see uh, that you went to school in Amsterdam for college? I, I did my master's in Amsterdam um, studying distributed networks, basically. That's great. Um, yeah. That's a wonder, wonderful city. How did you like it? Oh, it's the best. It's the best. Um, especially back then, um, um, about 10 years ago now. Um, yeah, I think before Airbnb, I think everything felt so quaint, you know? <laughs> It felt so special to just be there. Um, yeah. No, but I, I had the best experience. Uh, I haven't, I've rarely had a car in my life, um, just for various reasons of like they they pollute and they're costly. And so to me, Amsterdam is the best because you can get across the whole city on a bike in like Great. twenty minutes. You go anywhere, twenty minutes on a bike, you're you're there. So yeah, no, it's it's one of the best parts about it. Um, and then going back to like Napster and what, what kind of like sparked you um, towards the sort of coding side of things, it, it, it sounds like it was sort of this peer-to-peer -peer, um, uh, structure, right? Because I don't think too much before that we had ever had a peer-to-peer -peer sort of network that had been enabled. Was that, was that something that sort of like, you know, made a light bulb go off over your head? Yeah, you know, it's it's a funny thing to like experience technology after it's already saturated the world, right? Like 
I'll give you another example. Like I am still blown away when like what like Wi-Fi works. I'm like, what? Like, I, like I can like, you know what I mean? Like I'm on a plane and like I'm chatting with somebody and like, you know, yeah. I'm, like how is that possible? So there's these moments that are just so experiential, I think. And you're like, I don't know, you like still feel them. And um, so it's hard to describe what like Napster was like, but it was up there. Like just the idea that you could go on your computer and get pretty much any song that existed. Because there was a time when like, if you wanted to get an album or music, like you'd have to like, for me, like go to New York City, like go to all the music stops, like, you know, it wasn't online. Um, And, you know, the cool thing about Napster and maybe, you know, some of the technology now with like blockchain and Web3 is like, I think that the innovation a lot of times drives the change. And so, you know, what's back then it was like, well, what's going to have whatever, you know, bands like Nirvana or Smashing Pumpkins or some of the bands like from the, like, what's going to put have them put music online? You know, it's like their record companies weren't just going to do it. Like they're not going to, you know, innovate and cut into their own sales. So it like a lot of times takes like, almost like a revolution where somebody kind of comes like flanked at the side and, and, um, and kind of like, you know, messes things up in like a cool way. So that was the experience. It just blew my mind where I was like, I can go online, get any music all of a sudden for the first time. Yeah. And then not only that, just get it from like some random person in like Malaysia or anywhere in the world. I don't even need permission. Um, so that, that just made me feel like, whoa, you know, I guess if like in my parents' generation, I guess if, uh, if like uh, music was like rock and roll, like music was like freedom and like, whatever like rock and roll means like to my parents and like to me it was like code is just like the coolest thing <laughs> it's like it's it literally there's like the the recording industry in new york city is like you know p- people in suits and stuff are like um you know yeah that's, that's like disrupted and angry it's so cool <laughs> yeah yeah we've been we've been writing about that a lot at the central and a lot of podcasts are touching on how music is changing with web3 now mm-hmm. and, and the, the ability of musicians to use nfts or other you know structures to finance their own work you know which is, is amazing and, and hasn't been able to they haven't been able to do that for, for decades but yeah speaking of of record stores i remember buying my first CDs and they, they come in long boxes. Do you remember? Uh, they would, because uh, uh, I, I think, I, yeah, think the record stores, I think the record stores were cheap and they hadn't switched over from like record bins, you know, and the record of course is much bigger than a CD. So if they wanted to stack the CDs in the same bins, they had to like have this long cardboard box that came along with it. That's a great so, theory because yeah, otherwise it wouldn't stick out high enough. Yeah, to see it would, it. Be, it would, it would be fall behind the records. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Bin um, and uh, yeah. So uh, and then once you sort of like were you know it, just in, enthralled with this and with Napster, like tell me more about your path. Like what? what where did it lead you from there? Um, well, I, you know, that's I mean, that's why I went to University University of Amsterdam is is really a great school for um, studying networks effects on culture. So to me, I went, um, I, I had taught myself how to code after Napster and BitTorrent, and I felt like I had the technical chops, but I just started to question, okay what are we doing with this technology? Like, is it good? Is it bad? Like, these are the questions I was asking. Um, how do we affect positive change to, you know, 
And so that school really jumped out at me. Yeah, because because they're they were studying like the effects on society. And so I went down that route and um really started to get close to doing a PhD and then realized um I just needed to like not be in school anymore kind of feeling. <laughs> and that was when I came back to New York City um around like 2011-ish to um to kind of kind of like understand what the startup culture was about and like fundraise and start start a company. I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but that was kind of what happened. So then I got I got into entrepreneurship or whatever you want to call that. Yeah. And is that where um you started a company called One Month, right? That I was, did. Yes. Was, tell, tell us about that because I, I, I like this concept a lot. Yeah. One month is the idea that anyone can learn the code in 30 days. Um, we started um, about 2013. We went through Y Combinator in order to, you know, incubate the idea. And when we came out with that, we um, we came out with a, a kind of suite of like 20 courses with mentorship online that anyone could um, could join and then feel by the end of 30 days they would make. Um, four projects is the idea. Of course, everybody always asks, like, well, can I get a job at Google after like 30 days? Like, no, the answer is not. Yeah. But um, but there are a lot of like amazing things you can do in just 30 days. Like you can from scratch, you can make a, a GIF search engine, you know, where we made a jukebox with like uh using a music player API. And like you can do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, uh, you know, it's just like getting started was always the thing. And as someone who taught themselves how to code, I was like, all these books are so boring. You know, it's like a hundred pages of like math. I'm like, nobody wants that. Just show me how to make cool stuff. So that was kind of the premise of the company. And um, yeah, and I ran it with uh, with a good friend of mine for about seven years. Yeah, it was yeah. quite a run. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah, I know I hear you about the boring part and I've tried to get my kids into coding because there was a bunch of Minecraft, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, projects or whatever that you you know services that you can get in and you can start like coding your own changes to the game and skins and all that stuff um but i don't know for my older son even that was too boring so <laughs> um but so okay we're in like the mid 2013 era around there had you heard about bitcoin at this point or when when did crypto kind of cross your radar um, well, there's a quote and I might get it wrong, but it's William, it's William Gibson who wrote Neuromancer, which is like one of the big, and, and, and it, he says something like, uh, the future is, the future is now it's just not evenly distributed. Like the future is everywhere. And, um, and that to me would really kind of speak to what it was like to go from New York city and then all of a sudden living in Silicon Valley, it was like. I landed there and felt like the future was happening, you know, at the same time, but it just was like more distributed. It was more in Silicon Valley than happening in New York at the time. And so I remember my first experience, it was like, you know, I think I had heard about Uber, but all of a sudden there's like Uber, there's Lyft, there's like people are paying for things with Bitcoin. It was like, um, uh, who else was there? Uh, that company, I don't forget their name, but like not seamless, but the, uh, the, the other one that delivers, you know, it was just like everything was like in, in the future happening at once. And um, and Bitcoin was part of that. And um, when I, yeah, when I first saw people paying each other in Bitcoin, I just thought it was like internet money, like gate, video game money. I was like, I don't, I don't know what this is. Like, what's going yeah. on? Um, but it took, you know, it took a little. I had to be ex- explained it to, and then 
Um, but you know, I think slowly that was that was like the moment for me when it went after a handful of conversations where I pushed back and tried to like really understand. Um, I could see it. So yeah, 2013 for me was the year that I was just like, oh, okay, finally, this is this is going to change the world. You know? Yeah. Bitcoin didn't make sense to me either at first. It wasn't until I understood the blockchain technology underneath it and like how it enabled it, that, that that's what clicked for me. hundred um, percent. I totally get that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so yeah, that must've been quite a culture shock going from New York city to, to Silicon Valley at that time. It was a year. It was, I don't know if that's true every year in life, but it, like 2013 specifically, like, there's a lot happening that year. Uh, so yeah, it was, I mean, it was one year after Coinbase had formed and they had gone through Y Combinator. So when we got there to, to YC, they, you know, they had just been there. And I think that they, I think there was a sense of like something stirring. It was very, obviously very small, but they obviously stirred the bot in the right way over there. Yeah. So then, um, it, but then it was, it was several years before you kind of like, came back to, to web or, or got into like the web three stuff that you're doing what was that was it just the timing wasn't right or well yeah I, to... I i just raised you know for one month and we had started that company and yeah we were really excited about building that company so um so yeah we went off on that path we at one month we had a bitcoin bitcoin course and an ethereum course around 2016 and that, that's when I also started teaching this stuff at um, Columbia Business School. So I brought um, coding and Web3, which back then was just called like blockchain, um, to Columbia Business School. And so it was kind of in the background like of my day-to-day. It was like I was teaching some classes in it and like involved in it. And I knew, I knew a lot of the people in the space just because I was going to all the meetups and, you know, uh, conferences and stuff. But yeah, it wasn't until um, a little over a year ago, uh, I stopped, you know, I stepped away for one month and was able to free myself up and just have a little bit, bit of a clear vision of like, or just like a clear air of like, well, you know, what what's next? Which is, you know, looking forward. And yeah, that was last year for me. So Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Columbia because um, you've been teaching oh, yeah. for a while. A while. Um, I'm just curious how the students have changed in their demeanor, maybe about crypto over that period of time, um, and, and like what you've seen from that sort of perspective. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's so funny because it just kind of, unfortunately, a little bit goes with like the hype cycles of crypto. I remember in 2017 that was the first year we added it, and I think it was like. 10% of the curriculum. And I remember someone raised their hand and she was like, why, why is this so much of the curriculum? Like, why, you know, why are we spending 10% on this? Like, what does this have to do with anything? The next year was 20, I think it was 2018 was the big crypto, every, you know, and it was like everywhere. It was the year, it was the year kind of exploded into the mainstream. Um, and I'd say since then, it's been like, why is it only 10%? Right? Now it's like 25, now it's 25%. It's like, why is this not a whole course? You know, so yeah. Um, so it's been funny, it's been funny to watch, but also, you know, people understand it more, um, little by little. And so also the conversation changes, which is nice. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's really, it's really a pleasure. Um, the business school students, if anyone is ever thinking of, um, going to Columbia, they're like, this is just the smartest, uh, I guess, obviously, but like, I feel like I learned so much from them 
Um, yeah. It's very diverse from all, all different countries around the world. And yeah, they, they're great. So yeah, I remember when I went to Berkeley for grad school in journalism, Yeah, I was really surprised at how much I learned from my fellow students. Mm -hmm. the, the, professors, the professors were great, of course, and they were, you know, they were well respected in the industry, but it was really from the people I was in the classes with that I felt like I really like that's where I kind of really learned the most. Yeah. And maybe it's getting back to like what we were saying earlier when, you know, kids are, you know, they just see what other kids are doing and it's just like kind of like this osmosis kind of thing can happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. So um, now with console, that's your new your new gig. Uh, it's it's a Web3 um, community uh, or it's, well, it's. It's kind of like Discord without um, the headaches and maybe the risk of getting all of your stuff stolen. <laughs> to, yes, to, to, exactly. to, speak, to be concise, um, and if it, if anyone out there, you know, probably a lot of listeners have used Discord. I'm not a huge fan. I think I'm maybe a little old for it, but it is mm -hmm. to me not uh, very user friendly or experience wise. Um, I get a bit overwhelmed with it. Um, but why don't you like tell us like you you've seen this as a problem and, and obviously there are um, way too many scams where people get um, their wallets compromised through phishing and discord and, and maybe you could just kind of like lay out the problem that you guys saw for why you wanted to create console in the first place. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, we started working on console last summer. It's been about a year and. I think the easiest way to understand it, which also has, I think, a lesson for, you know, I'm a teacher, I guess. So, but maybe there's like a lesson also for new entrepreneurs or new people in the Web3 space um, would be, I, you know, I, I, I define three principles of Web3. There's like principles of what Web3 means to me. And to me, and I'll share those. And to me, last summer, it was just clear to me that Discord wasn't, following any of those and didn't really care to do that. And so I was basically looking at the Web3 movement and the traction last summer with NFTs and DAOs and, you know, thinking like, like nobody, even last summer, nobody really was calling it Web3 and like the cult, like kind of zeitgeist. It wasn't until like September, October. So I was like, no, I think I'm just like really feeling like this is, this is going to happen. And when it does, like, this is the year, um, these communities are soon going to realize that like discord just doesn't have the foundation because it's just at odds with the principles and so the principles in short are promoting decentralization number one number two is ownership so ownership of data um, ownership of assets it's just basically like ownership uh, and then number three is working in public and the funny thing about these principles also is that they aren't so new really um, they've been around in the open source community for decades. And I really, what Web3 does to me is it takes these principles, which, um, which most developers already kind of embrace in how they write code, and then it just applies that to other parts of life. And so when we look at, you know, communities, whether it's people, um, crowdfunding to purchase a basketball team or to do an investment uh, or purchase the constitution, or these are all real examples of how Shout people out to cross house there. Cross house, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, or or it's a, or it's a or it's an artist, you know, in, in a city or in the suburbs, wherever, who launches an NFT collection and 
finds their tribe. Like these three things uh, are all really important. Decentralization, ownership, right? Having shared ownership and then doing it in public, working in public, putting on the blockchain in public. And when we look at what people are trying to build using those principles, Discord has none of them. Discord is very centralized. You know, just last week we saw that they were able to just shut down um, a community without any vote or say to just shut down the tornado cash immediately. Um, they own that data. You don't own that. They own your identity. If they want to shut you down, they can. Um, and they can access that or send it to whoever they want. Um, and then number three, it's very closed source. It's not open source. They don't work in public. There's no um, quorum or like vote on like how the future of Discord is going to work for Web3. Uh, really, Discord is built for gamers and it wasn't built for Web3. And we all, we all know that, at least in our bodies. I was just going to ask you that because I didn't know that. Like, why did it all of a sudden seem like everyone in Web3 was on Discord? It seemed like it was like Zoom. I had never heard of Zoom before. And then all of a sudden, the whole world is on Zoom. Yeah. I, I didn't know that gamer connection. Oh, yeah. There's a there's a long history. Um, yeah, there's... Um, I mean, I'll also share things that I love about Discord and answer that question. Is like Discord's really great for bringing together large groups of people who don't know each other, right? Um, you could have like 10,000 people, 20,000 people in a Discord. You can share images, you can collaborate. There's a lot of really great things about it. And that did come from about like, I want to say at least 10 years now, eight years of like the gaming community. People would live stream games, they would chat, and it works really well for that. Um, so. Web3, or just a lot of you know people in the space, I think looked at either that as an option or what else is there? I guess there's Slack. You know, there's like these two options. Slack is, you know, it's very pricey and um and you need to have people's emails for the most part. Um, so with Discord, there was like a bunch of workarounds that people started to figure out. And using bots, they were able to like authenticate. Um but yeah, that's, that's, that's the one thing I understood was that, and that's blocked because they're using the blockchain, but there's a bot in the middle of it. And there's a bot in the middle. Yeah, that's one of your, um, your like, a, it's a pain point that you point out is like, this is, this, this gives attackers more ways to get in and to, to mess with you, basically. So console is not, console is going to be directly on chain to the console application. Exactly. In the right way. Okay. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you look at, I'm sure listening listeners are familiar with literally the hundreds of scams um, and hacks. There's a whole list of them that's on our site. Actually, I, I think where you're I, there's a piece at blog.console.xyz. I wrote a piece on this. And yeah, we studied over 100 um, different Discord hacks that have happened just over the past few months. And we worked with a security, cybersecurity team to just see what were there any kind of like, principle canonical lessons that we could take away from that and apply to console. And, you know, what we found is that a majority of all of these hacks, um, oh, actually nearly everyone that we looked at uh, really just had to do with uh, having the, the bots um, and identity getting hacked somewhere in between there. Um, if your identity is compromised, someone's identity gets compromised and then they send out a phishing link or they try to do some bad actions in the, Community and so you know what we've been looking at with console learning from that is where we don't use bots we read the blockchain directly from our app um, and if we you know the smart contracts that we plan to deploy um, they'll be all open source and they'll be audited um, meaning just basically like reviewed for security um, 
and you'll know what you're getting. Whereas right now you don't, you don't really know what's happening behind the scenes. And that's, that's really tricky. It's, um, I've been dealing with this too, because there's been um, more and more of these hacks um, in the broader Web3 world where it's, it's open source code, you know, like um, there's this, this stable coin, Akala, it just went to zero um, last week um, because somebody, a hacker or groups of several hackers looked at the code and realized that they could just mint, they minted like 1.3 billion um, stable coins that this, this, this um, firm issued. So it just kind of crashed and went to zero. So on the one hand, open source is great because everyone can kind of look under the hood and help and like, you know, add new features and make it better. But then do you also worry that it's also just sort of like open book for, for hackers and for people who have, you know, bad intentions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's definitely a, a trade-off in that respect. Um, open source code powers the world, you know? Um, so everything from, if you have an Android phone, it's running on open source, basically like Linux. Um, if you have an Apple, if you have a Mac, um, your operating system is like basically a fork of some open source code. Every server on the internet, about 90% of them are, are open source WordPress. Like I can go on and on. Like, every, like a lot of the code is shareable and open. Um, you know, the, the kind of like 101 of that, the basic of that, idea of like having it everywhere is that they tend to say that like if you have more eyes on the code and more people working it over time it really becomes i guess like anti-fragile basically like it, it gets stronger based on the more people that look at it and more people that use it um so i think that the payoff um of it is really big i think if someone's looking at the code and exposing a vulnerability in it um, I mean, it's easy for me to say, but uh, to critique another project who's I don't really know the details. So, but I'll just speak for myself and say that, you know, we over the past few months have launched some modules that are open source. And, you know, we're doing as much due diligence to do security audits. So having security experts review it, you know, we, we pay for that, obviously, um, as well as setting up a bug bounty program so that we can send 100 hackers to it to we, if you don't know how that works, basically we, we pay them. If they find the bug, we pay them out like maybe a few thousand dollars. Um, but we'd rather pay a white hat, basically a good hacker to find bugs and pay them a few thousand dollars than having these, um, you know, the, the potential of like millions of dollars stolen. So I guess all I have to say is like, I think the promise and the potential of open source is like proven and amazing. And if you're new to it and you're launching a project and you have like the potential to take millions of dollars, like, it's really the due diligence of the founders, I would say, to like set up the right security to, in order to like slowly roll it out in a trusted way. And yeah, from the user's perspective, it's hard to know, I guess, like, is this trusted or not? Uh, time is an ingredient that is so valuable. And I think we don't appreciate it enough. And like an example of that would be with Bitcoin. Like every time Bitcoin runs every day, it gets more secure and more trusted why because it hasn't been hacked like pr pretty much simply it's open source code that hasn't been hacked if that lasts for a thousand years trust me that price is going to go up and up and up because people are just going to trust it more but go all the way back to 2013 or 2010 uh, bitcoin is just like any other crappy shit coin on the on the internet you know it was like well who says who says it's good you know 
but time is really important. And I think that's, um, I think that's what, why the web three gets stronger every year. And I don't know that we appreciate that enough. But open source code is the same thing. We, it gets stronger, uh, the more people use it. And, and that's the goal. Yeah, and I think you're right. And I think that that's where the problem kind of lies a lot of times in these hacks is that people rush things, you know, they don't take enough time and they don't, yeah. they don't make security um, enough of a priority. They want to get out to market, you know, there's FOMO, there's all that stuff. Um, it's, you know, there are amazing projects out there, but it's also just, it's a bummer to see things, you know, people losing real money um, and, and over and over again, it's sort of like chips away at the credibility of the wider space. Um, so I'm with you hundred percent on, on taking the time and, and making sure that security is, um, is paramount. So the other aspect that caught my eye is that you want to create um, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization that would help, um, Govern console is that a good way to say it, or what, what, help me with with how does the, the DAO? What's the DAO's role, and what console wants to be going forward? Yeah, so that's true, and also you know I'll I'll just kind of I'll answer that in like as plain speak as possible to to set kind of like the goals of why we're doing that. Um, so you know over time we want console to be. <laughs> like of the people for the people, like uh, you know, like a like a document, like a living document of code. We we want to learn from the communities that are using it, and we want them to have some kind of input into the future, right? So, for example, like Discord right now, um, a lot of communities want MetaMask integration. Um, Discord considered doing it uh, about a year ago and got a lot of pushback from the gamer community, right? Um, there there's never really like a vote though there's never really like kind of like an open uh you know opinion so of like yeah, how it's to not steer democratic this. right it's not like super democratic at the end of the day discord you know decides and so we really wanted to try to like bring that democracy to the app um over time and give people what i would call governance you mentioned governance is like the question of well, you know, who, who gets a voice, who gets the voice and how loud are they and who gets to, you know, help decide. So we really want to bring the community into the side. So, you know, we're, we're calling it a DAO, but I think over time, that definition of DAO, I imagine, I anticipate it to adjust and become more a range of DAO things. Anywhere from the strict definition where it's like a DAO is this like, organization without anyone in control and everything's on the blockchain, which is like a very strict definition, all the way to like more of just like a decentralized organization, like a bunch of people. That means just like a bunch of people um, who have some shared ownership and can influence the direction of the thing. But maybe maybe not everything um, is on the blockchain. Maybe not everything is like 100% decentralized. So I, I don't know where we're going to fall on that, you know, kind of um, wavelength. But I think the the important part is that we do want to we do want to share um, whether it's ownership in the platform by voice having a voice or shared investment in like the future potential of the app. Um, those are things we're definitely considering. So that's that's the path. We're definitely not there yet. We're in the early days, um, and that's where we're hoping to go. Yeah, um, as someone who was um, considering creating a DAO, I can tell you it's a lot of work. And yeah, it's 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 a full time job in and of itself. If anyone out there listening is thinking it's like a side hustle, it's really not. And 
the thing that I discovered um, that I think is key is that the, having the community is the most important part um, because that's those are the people who are going to help you make it work. You know, everyone's going to kind of go to what they like to do and specialize in, you know, from their past work experience. Um, and then, you know, so then you can then all sort of align into, you know, what's the community all going to get behind, like making console work, you know? Um, so yeah. With that, I was just curious, what is the, like the revenue model here? How do you make money from, from doing something like this with console? Yeah, that's a really great question. We're not, um, we're not so, concerned right now about making money. I mean, it'll definitely have to happen at some point. Um, I think there'll just be a lot of opportunities. I think that, you know, for us, if we can make something that Web3 loves and that we can really be making a positive change for these communities, um, I think over time, there's just like a lot of opportunities. You know, if, if you look at website, if you look at website, if you look at WordPress, for example, WordPress powers literally 40% of the entire internet is a WordPress site. And WordPress is free. It's open source. It always has been. And, um, you know, yeah, it's like, a, I would imagine like definitely multi-million dollar, maybe hundreds of million dollars, maybe a billion dollar business. I'm not sure. It's a very large, you know, profitable company. Um, how do they do it? Well, you know, WordPress stays open source and free. But if you want additional services like extra security for enterprise, if you want um, spam protection or certain modules and features and plugins, you know, you pay a little bit extra. So I think that, you know, anything in that range could be the, you know, I'm not deciding right now, but I just think that if you make an open source product that people love and they can benefit from, there's always, all you know, customized, I guess you could say, or niche um, add-ons within that ecosystem. And so, yeah, we're first just trying to make something people love, but we're not too concerned that if they do love it, they'll probably love other things that we can make. <laughs> yeah. And I think as we've seen with Web2, online communities are very valuable. And the, the, the great thing about Web3 is those those communities can now be in charge of like of their own value, you know, and not being not, not being exploited by a Facebook okay. or, you know, or Google or whatever. Um, and then, okay, so now console, you're sort of like sending out invitations to select people to kind of come on board like is it in the beta phase right now is that how you would put it yeah we're in a beta phase testing with a variety of communities and right now if you're interested if you're listening and you're interested in joining um you can come to our website console.xyz and you can join our waitlist it's we'll have an email for you there um but even better is if you're an admin of a community or a moderator, if you're part of a community and you want to bring your community, we're giving privileged access to communities first. Um, so uh, just go to the website or you go to start.console.xyz and there's an application form. Fill it out. Um, we review every single application and we're just making a, a rollout list of cohorts over the next few months as we test uh, and we bring more people on. So yeah, we'd That's love great. to have you join us. Yeah, I'll put all that in the show notes for anyone oh, who wants awesome. to check it out for the listeners. Um, well, Chris, this has been really, really fascinating. Um, I just have to go back to one thing that you mentioned. You were on the set of Sesame Street and you said, like, I wanted, always wanted to do. You looked into Oscar's garbage can. And so what did you find? What did I find inside Oscar's garbage can? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
don't just say an arm <laughs> with his <laughs> with a puppeteer. Can you just like just just humor me here for my 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 childhood and tell me that it was just just this amazing trash cave? Um, so there's a wonderful man who uh, was the was the voice of Oscar, and do you, do you know who he was? Like he, t- there was two puppets on Sesame Street that were the same person, and that's who was in Oscars. Do you know who it was? It's not Mel Blanc, right? It was no. Carol Spinney was his name. Okay. okay. Um, Carol was the voice of Oscar, but also Oscar is like the grouch, right? He's like very Rich. angry, but he was also the voice of that, like one of the happiest um, people on Sesame Street or you know, Big Bird. So Big Bird uh, and Oscar were, were Carol Spinney. There's a whole documentary, a separate one about him. That's really wonderful. But yeah, he was uh, he was in there. And when, when I went, he was like, I don't know, gray hair, like tiny frame man. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was funny. They, (laughs) the one thing I do remember at that young age, though, is like offset, they like all the puppets have dirty mouths. That's all I'll say. Even (laughs) dirty mouth. I was like, excuse Uh, me. I would love to hear that. Um, I was just going to say, there is a great Elmo movie. Um, I can't remember the name, but he goes through Oscar's trash can and ends up in trash land or something uh, my kids used to watch this all the time oh yeah i think yes. is that being yes, elmo yeah. maybe i don't know i've uh, seen one of the elmo movies yeah mandy patankin is in it um he's like the bad guy and he comes and wants oh. to like take all of this stuff and so that's <laughs> all right that's about the limit of my um elmo sesame street knowledge but um, the adventure the adventures of elmo in Grouchland. that's what yes that yes that is it that is it that's yeah. how he gets there he goes to your oscar's trash can to get to Grouchland. amazing um, yeah yeah definitely worth it if you guys like after you watch the documentary on sesame street you guys should all watch uh adventures in Grouchland. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Good luck with console and um, for everybody listening. Uh, there's more info in the show notes and um, it'll be really cool to see how you guys um, develop and good luck to all of that. Yeah, thanks so much, Matt. If anybody listening wants to check us out, we're on Twitter, ConsoleDAO and um, say, come say hi. And thanks, yeah. Matt, for having me. We're super excited to to uh, yeah be sharing this with your audience. So thank you. Of course, yeah. And I'll put all that in the show notes too. All right, awesome. first take it here. Okay, bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Decent People. We are produced by Matt Solon. Music is courtesy of Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Take care.